Good morning. You guys doing well? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3. This is our life. There's an app for that. Teaching series, Don't Lose Heart. How many are already losing heart just because it's hot? Show of hands? Show of hands? Okay. How many, it's getting just right for you? Just perfect. Okay. You guys are sick. And uh, no, I, I like it hot. Doesn't bother me. I was born and raised here. How many desert rats do we have in the house? Show of hands? Okay. Yeah, look at that. Bring it on. Bring it on while we stay inside. Yeah. Air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning. Praise God. So, here we go. Don't lose heart. Have you ever been in a conversation, and while you're in that conversation, all of a sudden there's a thought that hits you, kind of runs, runs into your mind. You go, hey, oh, by the way, uh, before I forget about it, let me tell you uh, while I'm thinking about it. And then you, you go on, you kind of uh, digress into another topic so that then eventually you come back to the topic you were talking about. Anybody? Show of hands. Oh, sure. We all do that. And uh, women do that more than men. And uh, actually, my wife does, and she doesn't bother to tell me what topic she's moved on to. She doesn't bother to take me along with her. And it's like I'm still on the first topic, and she's already moved on. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul does in our text. Is that verse, this verse 1 of chapter 13 he starts talking about being a prisoner, and then all of a sudden he says, oh, oh, by the way, and then he goes into, he digresses into uh, this talk about not losing heart. He's not wanting them to lose heart, and then he picks up the topic again in verse 14, where we'll pick it up next week, and he's actually wanting to pray for them and teach them a prayer, but he gets this thought all of a sudden as he's talking about being a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And in verse 13 of our text, he says, So I ask you, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. That's where we got the title of this weekend's message. Do not lose heart. When someone you love is suffering, and that's what he's doing, he's suffering, and they're also suffering too. But when someone you love is suffering, or you are suffering, your heart can, be, can get taken out of you. You can lose heart. The Greek uh, understanding and the New Testament was written in Greek, so you go back to the kind of the original definition here. And to lose heart means to be utterly spiritless. So it's to, it's to lack any enthusiasm in life. You just kind of lose all your enthusiasm. So to be utterly spiritless, to be wearied out or exhausted. Kind of the byproduct of that was that you're just cold, bitter, numb, cynical about life, feeling like giving up. That's what he's talking about, losing heart. This message was, is perfect for me this morning. And maybe you're right there too. I mean, this, this helped me out tremendously the last couple of weeks as I was just kind of grappling with the issues in my own, own life. And this losing heart can happen in a general sense, you know, your whole life. You just feel like giving up on life. Or it can happen in a specific area of your life. It can happen in marriage, in your finances, in health. Your job, parenting, or, or your relationship with God, which obviously affects every part of our lives. So here's the thesis statement for this morning's study. Life is hard, but God is great and good. 
Therefore, do not lose heart. That's where we're headed. We're going to unpack those thoughts in our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment with heads bowed, eyes closed, just kind of show of hands. Is there a specific area in your life, or maybe in general, that you are sensing that you're just losing heart, you're struggling with? Show of hands, show of hands. Yep, yep, yep. Quite a number of hands. Father in heaven, you see every hand. You know every heart. You love us with an infinite and eternal love that fills our emotional tanks. We come to you in the name of your Son, our Savior, through the power of the Holy Spirit who is present with us right now. In your words, Psalm 34, 18 and 19 says this, Lord, you are close to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit. It also says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you, Lord, deliver him out of them all. So, Father God, through the study of your word, may we sense your presence here this morning to heal our hearts, to rejuvenate our spirits as you breathe hope into our lives That though we may have many afflictions, you will deliver us from them all. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. I'll read it completely through. And uh, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll go through and unpack it. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner from Christ Jesus, for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice the little dash. If you have your Bibles open, it has a little dash there. It's, he's going to digress. This is where he digresses. Oh, by the way, he gets this thought, and he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive, or when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, now you're you're seeing this word over and over again, it's at least three times. This mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Another word you, you see over and over again. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Grace is another word you see over and over again. So you're kind of looking for key words, key phrases of to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, I love that. You will never, ever, ever be able to plummet the depth, the height, the length, the width of the beauty, the glory, the satisfaction of Jesus Christ is what he's really saying there. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for, for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about angels and demons. We're going to get into this a little bit later on in the study when we talk about spiritual warfare. So there's, 
there are angels and demons watching us, watching how we live our lives. And they have major influence on what goes on on this planet Earth. Then verse 11, if you thought, by the way, let me just say this. If you, did, if you thought you weren't being watched, you are, okay? Not just by God, but there are angels and demons all around, working, influencing, fighting. And that's the idea that he's wanting to get across. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's read verse 12 together and aloud. Are you ready? It's a great verse. It kind of climaxes here. It's the pinnacle of what he's saying. Here we go. One, two, three. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What is he saying there? That, that's an amazing verse. He's saying that we can... We have boldness. Boldness is a word, literally in the Greek, it means that we can be open, transparent, openness and honesty before God. I can come to God and give him my heart. So we have access to the throne room of God. And then then he says confidence, and we have confidence. What does that mean? He receives me with open arms. That's what he's saying. So we have access to God, and he receives us with open arms as we open up our heart to him. He's talking about this deep, intimate connection that we have with God. That's ours through our faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that alone would be enough for us right there to be able to endure anything. If if we lived in the reality of that, that one verse, let me finish. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's look, look at this thesis statement. Life is hard, but God is great and good. Therefore, don't lose heart. Let's unpack this. Life is hard, verse 14. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Paul is suffering. He's been in prison for five years. But he isn't losing heart. In fact, there's no hint of any kind of uh, anger, frustration, bitterness. All I have to do is look at my, I look at my heart oftentimes when, when my heart starts shrinking for God and for people, I know that I'm not in a good place. When I hear what's coming out of my mouth, when I'm cynical and sarcastic, uh, I know that there's something going on with my heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I kind of listen to myself and I can tell where I am, what's going on, why am I frustrated, why am I angry, why am I anxious, why am I so bitter? What is going on? I was struggling with that over the last few weeks, just with some different things that were piling up. And, and I had a pace that was too hard to keep up. I, I, as you guys know, I'm a workaholic. I tend to default to that. I'm a perfectionistic dude, and, you know, and so I, I push the bar too high, and so I've always got to look back and say, wait a minute, my acceptance is not in my performance, but it's in Christ. So, I have to, so it gave me some good opportunity to really evaluate my own life but, uh, but you don't have a hint of any of that in Paul as he's writing this. But he's fearful that they're going to become bitter because they're probably thinking, wait a minute, you've been in prison for five years. You're God's man. You're God's man and, and you got the blessing of God and yet you're in prison. What's up with that? So, so what that does is that when we go through difficulties, we immediately start thinking, well, where's, where's God's love in all this? So he's wanting them to know, hey, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Let me give you some other thoughts here. Life is hard. The Bible is the most realistic book in the world on suffering. That's your first fill in the blank. Got a number of verses there you can read on your own. But uh, 
James 1, 2 through 3, it basically just says suffering is inevitable. Count it all joy when, not if, but when you face trials of many kinds. Literally what it's saying, it's just a whole assortment of trials that you're going to face. It's just inevitable. You're going to face it. That's part of life. So it's inevitable. Job teaches us. How many are familiar with the book of Job? Show of hands. Okay. It's a hard read, isn't it? We studied it a number of years ago, but it's actually not just about suffering, but it's also about the sovereignty of God. And the book of Job teaches us that suffering uh, can be inexplicable. You guys know what that means? It doesn't make any sense. Job never learned why he was suffering. He never found out. He never found the why of his suffering. God never told him the why. So suffering is inevitable. Many times suffering can be inexplicable. Can't figure this one out. And that's what the Bible says. And then another thing as it relates to this idea of suffering, the Bible giving us a realistic understanding of it is John 16, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So suffering is an invitation to trust God and find that he is more than enough. Now there's a couple different responses to suffering. There's stoicism. You guys know what stoicism is? Stiff upper lip. It's almost kind of a denial. I worked with a guy who was a bit stoic when I was working out of Palo Verde. And we still have to bring in these big large pipes. I was a pipe fitter, welder, and we'd bring them all in and use these come-alongs and chain falls and all these different things to bring them in there. This guy got his finger in between a couple pipes and got his finger cut off. Here's was this guy's attitude. Hey, no big deal, no big deal. Come on. Let's go back to work. You got blood squirting out your finger, dude. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's weird. You know, that's, that's stoicism. You, you lost a finger. I mean, I, I know it wasn't like losing an arm or anything, and that would be bad, but that's bad, dude. You need to go get some help. No, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Come on, let's get this thing in there. Dude, your finger's over there on the pipe. <laughs> you know, it's just that's stoicism. It's almost a denial. It is a denial of the reality. And the, and the Bible doesn't say be stoic about it. But what's the opposite of stoicism? It's Epicureanism. It's just let your feelings fly. It's, my wife was telling me a story of a gal in our, uh, it was part of this church years ago back over at 17th Avenue and Bell Road. And while she was in church, someone broke into her car and, and stole some stuff in her car. And she came outside and she just freaked out. My life is over. My life is ending. And my wife went over there and she didn't, you know, it's one of those things where you sometimes... Uh, You've seen it in the movies where they'll grab a hold of them and go, smack! (laughs) And uh, my wife didn't actually do that. But she just said, your life's over? She just stopped her, calmed her down, said, your life's over? So you still have... And she basically, she was saying, I've lost everything. Okay, so you're still here, so you're not dead. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm still here. And your son is still here, and you still have your car. Hey, this thing started echoing all of a sudden really crazy. It's distracting me. I don't know what it is, but... Did you guys notice that? Anybody notice that? I'm hearing things. Okay. There was one person right over here that's... He's as old as I am, I guess. Okay. That does sound a little better. Not much, but... Thanks, Mike. You can keep working on it. Uh... 
But anyway, this, uh, she said, you haven't lost your son. You haven't lost this. You haven't lost. She went through this whole thing. She says, okay, yeah, you're right. Here's what, uh, the Bible is the most realistic book in the world on suffering. And it's not a denial of, of you know, those feelings. Nor is it allowing those feelings to lead us through our lives. But it's learning how to apply the truth and love of God specific to where your heart is most restless. It's saying, hey, wait a minute, like, as I did these last couple of weeks, why am I so stressed out? Why am I so anxious? What's going on? What, is it, what truth are you wanting to teach me, God, in the midst of this? How can you meet me in the midst of this? It's not a denial of that. It's not letting it lead you, woo where you're all crazy, but it's saying, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? See, so the, our emotions are like the, the lights on the dashboard of our car. If we just ignore them over time, you're going to run out of oil and you're going to burn up your car. You know, you're going to run out of gas. So, so you look down and you go, okay, oh, I need to do something. I need to make some corrections here. I need to stop at a service station. I need to check the oil. I need to, any number of things. So that's what the emotions are, are meant to do in our own lives. And so the Bible is very real about that. And that's why I love the book of Psalms because you see this roller coaster of emotions. But in the midst of those emotions, you see God meeting David or the psalmist in the midst of the, whatever's going on. And that's what we need. Stoicism uh, is, is extremely dangerous, and also Epicureanism is where you just kind of let your life be led by your emotions and your feelings is also extremely dangerous. Here's the next point. Both good and bad people will suffer. Job was a very righteous man who um, feared God and shunned evil, and yet he had all hell break loose in his life. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that uh, those who try to live godly lives will suffer persecution the, the, the problem is is that oftentimes we come up with like job's miserable comforters we come up with pat answers well you're suffering because you have sin in your life or your sufferings because did you read your bible did you pray did you go to church this weekend did you do all these things and it's being very moralistic because you can do all the right things and still suffer because we live in a fallen world Christianity doesn't promise better life circumstances, but a better life in spite of circumstances. I was talking to, he's not in here right now, but uh, he was doing the sound, but uh, Jason Eddings over here. He's telling me about three guys that he works with that just dogpiled him this last week and they're angry and they used to be Christians and they're angry about how their lives turned out. And, and basically he said that one guy said, well, hey, I... I, I even spoke in tongues and I, I gave tithes and I went to church regularly. And, and so what is he saying? He's saying that he, God owes him? See, he doesn't understand grace. And why was he serving God? And, and you hear me say this all the time. Why are you serving God? Why are you here? Do you, do you come to him? Do you follow him so that he will make life better? Or is it because he is better than life? Psalm 63.3 says he's better than life. Then you miss the big E on the R chart. If you think somehow it's going to make your life better, certainly there is. There's a sowing and reaping law. I understand that. But even when you do all the right things, you can still have wrong, bad things happen. But in the midst of that, those bad things, you still have him. And he's better than life. And, and one of the things that I've, I've discovered with people, many deny their anger at God for suffering, 
But if they'll face it, they'll find it reveals their own personal agenda that has replaced God's. That they want their will to be done and not God's. And they didn't, they didn't understand that it's not about your will, it's about living for him and it's about his will. Here's the next one, suffering is a test of faith. So it really brings out, James 1.3 basically says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing this, the trying of your faith produces patience. A trial of your faith will give you the endurance and the character that you so desperately need. First um, Peter 7 says this, he says, so that the test of genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. So it's like gold in a furnace. What happens when gold is in a furnace? The dross comes to the, to the surface. So our life's like gold is being, is being tested by fire so that the dross can come to the surface. He says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that as Christ is more and more revealed in your life, to you and through you, through your difficulties, it's a testing of your faith. Are you going to follow him or not? When times get tough, are you going to continue to follow him? Why are you following him? Certainly, it's through the difficult times it reveals why you're following him. And then also 1 Peter, I gave you some other verses there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, that's the first thing that we do. Why is this happening to me? But rejoice. If you had any idea what God was up to in your life, you would rejoice in it. You'd go, wow, I I want all that he has for me. And if this is what it takes, may it be so. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so, so let me ask you this question. This is a simple question. I've asked you this many times before. Is God more concerned? You can yell out loud to me the answer. Is God more concerned with our character or our comfort? character is God more concerned with our holiness our wholeness or our happiness holiness yeah absolutely therefore God will always sacrifice our temporal for the sake of the eternal so when when there's a sacrifice to the temporal there's something in the eternal that he's wanting us to to open up our hands to when our hands our hands are clinging to the temporal Many times through suffering, he's wanting to pry our hands off of those things because he's wanting to reveal to us something that's in the eternal. I believe he's wanting to increase our joy in him as opposed to the things around us. It's impossible to understand what God is up to and not lose heart in suffering if the reality of eternity is missing from your worldview. Secularism, we live in a very secularistic society. Secularism is one of our gods here. Humanism consumerism, these are all the gods that we serve. But secularism is nowism. I just live for now. I don't even think about tomorrow. I want to, I want to be happy now. And that, that ruins us because, because living for now, we tend to, we live for now at the expense of tomorrow. And that's our society. That's why we're in the, the debt crisis we're in right now. It's why the economy isn't doing so well. It's because we got a whole bunch of people here in America today that wanted to live for now. 
I want it now. I want the big home now. And so we've crashed and burned because of that. So life is hard. But, but here's the next point. But God is great and God is good. Now let's talk about that just for a minute. There's a couple thoughts I need to work on as I, as I kind of work you in, this, in that direction. How important is it to have this uh, balanced perspective of God that he, God is great, God is, God is transcendent, wow, and God is uh, imminent, mm. God is powerful, God is personal. What happens when we swing to the extremes? By the way, we all tend to do that, and there are even camps, there are churches out there that tend to swing to one extreme or the other. The, the, the hyper-liberals kind of swing to the extreme that God is good. The seeker movement is kind of like that too in some regards. Not all churches that are in that seeker movement, but there are many churches that God is good. He's good buddy God. You know, it's just like God's everybody's buddy. And then you've got the other hyper-fundamentalist to where God is great. It's the tyrant God. Hellfire brimstone. You guys know what I'm talking about there? So there's got to be a balance between those two. God is great. Yes, he's holy, righteous, and just, but God is good. He's loving, kind, and merciful. It's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. Let me explain what I mean by that. You guys track with me. It's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. You, you might say, hey, uh, Pastor Ray, my heart is so big for this church if I had a million dollars, I would give it to the church. Yeah, if you had a million dollars. You're not that great. You don't have a million dollars. I love your heart. You might be good, but you're not that great, okay? Does that make sense? But in God's greatness, it's God's greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. That's what gives me peace. And typically when I'm going through difficulties, I'm usually forgetting one or the other. I might believe that he's good and he's close, but do I believe that he's powerful enough to see me through this? Or I might believe that he's powerful, but he's not certainly personal to me because I don't experience his presence right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why it's important to have both? So it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting, but it's his goodness that makes his greatness so humbling, and that's what empowers us. So I've got to maintain that balance. Now hold that thought. Let me take you to another thought because we're going to connect these in the next few points he uses this word mystery three times in verse 3, 6, and 9. And then he uses the word gospel twice in verses 6 and 7. And then he uses the word grace 2, 7, and 8. Verses 2, 7, and 8. So what he's saying is he talks about the mystery of the gospel of grace. What is that? Mystery here isn't something hidden from you that it's your job to discover, like murder mysteries. Anybody enjoy watching some of the murder mysteries that are on TV, like um, Dateline or tw- uh, 48 Hours or things like that? You guys, there's like three of us that like those. Yeah, they're, they're kind of, uh, and, and so who done it, you know, kind of thing. You're trying to figure out who's, who's doing what and why they do that and all that. Well, that's not what this word means. Mystery in the Greek is exactly the opposite. It's something revealed by God because you would never discover it through the process of reasoning. So it's not something you could ever discover, but it's something that is revealed by God because you would never discover it through the process of reasoning. And, and so this is, this is what you need to understand. If the mystery of the gospel of grace isn't a counterintuitive, astounding wonder that you never get tired of thinking and talking about and you are always fascinated and fulfilled with, then you don't understand the mystery of the gospel of grace. 
You've heard me say this before. If the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't the most amazing thing you've ever heard, then you've never really heard it. Because when you begin to understand the gospel, if you think you understand the gospel, you really don't understand the gospel. But if you believe that you really will never fully understand the gospel, and it's just this wow and mmm about God and what he's doing in our lives, then you're beginning to understand the gospel if it's beyond you, when you know that it's beyond you. That's the idea of this mystery. And this is how it works. It, it makes sense that if I live a good life, then God will bless me. That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. Next fill in the blank. It's God's greatness. In God's greatness, he doesn't condone our sin and compromise his standard. But in his goodness, he assumes our sin and sentences himself. See, that's the gospel. That's the mystery of the gospel. That's what he's talking about, the mystery of the gospel of grace. It's like, what? Wait, wait, I thought if I just get my act together, then God will bless me. No, 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 no. No, God already has blessed you through his son, Jesus Christ. He took the payment of your sin on the cross. And so you can freely enter into this access with God, boldness, confidence. He receives you with open arms. That's, that's crazy. That's amazing. We are sinners saved by Christ's works, grace, not our works, law. See, here's what's crazy about it, that you and I are enemies who have become his children in whom he loves. That you are my, my beloved children in whom I am deeply pleased he doesn't love us more when we are good and less when we are bad. We have his love no matter what, and that is what ultimately transforms us. You understand that? That's what changes us. So, so Christianity isn't behavioral modification motivated out of fear and pride, but it's heart transformation motivated out of a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. Does that make sense? In other words, our morality isn't a means to God's grace. It is a response to God's grace. I don't, I don't get my act together so that I can access God's grace. You have God's grace, therefore, it changes you. Yeah, you become... There's, there's, there's certainly morality in the Christian life, but the morality comes as a byproduct, your response to having been captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Did you know most people don't even know that? And some of you don't even know that because I can tell by your expression and how you're living out your life. It's just like, oh, we lose heart because we don't understand that. And we lose track of that. And we're not living in the reality of that. That alone, to the degree you understand that, to the degree that you're going to have this unspeakable, glorious joy, it will be life-transforming to you. And, and we, I communicate that regularly around here, but it's really going to take the Holy Spirit. It's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate that in your heart. And as God has made that more alive in my heart, I have never, ever, ever, ever been the same. And that's what I keep going back to. When I feel like I'm losing heart, it's because I've put my heart, and I've given my heart to too many other things, and I need to give my heart back to Him and look back to Him. Here's the next thing. This is a gift of unbelievable eternal privileges of which most important is our relationship with God. Remember what I said in verse 8, the unsearchable 
unsearchable riches. And then verse 12, this relationship with God, that was the kind of the apex of this text. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So this idea of verse 8, unsearchable means unfathomable. Riches, the Greek, cannot be searched out, cannot be comprehended. You will eventually get bored and tired of everything on this planet Earth. How many thought that if you could just move into that new house or get that new car, woo, that'll be great. Guess what? You got bored and tired of that eventually, didn't you? Absolutely. Look at your garage. You got stuff in there that you thought, man, I can't live without that stuff. And now it's just sitting in your garage. It's going to go out on the next yard sale. I mean, there's stuff all around us. Our lives are scattered with all kinds of things like that. And yet you will get bored and tired. You will eventually get bored and tired of everything except for Jesus Christ. Except for Jesus. Nothing is more fascinating and satisfying than the unsearchable riches of Christ. The more you get to know him, the more you'll be lost for words. Seeing and savoring his indescribable glory brings unspeakable joy. Here's the last point on this section. The brilliance of this gospel is to be revealed through the church. He said that. I'll, I'll read it in a minute. Just checking the time. Grabbing a drink. I'm going to sit down and relax. Here we go. So that is supposed to be put on display in our lives. So my question would be, is that happening? Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the multicolored, multidimensional wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's that idea that, man, the gates of hell won't prevail. That's one of the verses that I put on there, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Are you living a kind of life that the gates of hell won't prevail? You're kicking down the gates of hell. Remember Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, where we talked about these different dimensions of, of community and that we are, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens, so we're part of his kingdom. We are members of God's household. We're family. But more importantly, it says that we are this temple that as we interact with each other, as we do life together, as we live life together, God's presence is in us and around us in such a way that we are to live our lives in such a way that we, we stir up appetite within others for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the idea of what he's saying here. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The great purpose of God is to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. We, we studied that a few weeks back in Ephesians 1.10 that everything, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ, everything's going to end with, with Jesus ruling the earth, his kingdom. So let me ask you this, what's the grand story, the grand narrative of the universe? How does this thing playing out? What's going on? What would, how would you put that in, in simple terms? I was going to have you turn and talk to the person next to you and do that, but I don't I think some of you even know what it is. Here's what it is. The grand narrative Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What is God up to? Well, he created us in his image to have a relationship with him. We pushed him back. This sin brought, brought on the suffering that we see in this world today. 
And God could not bear the thought of that. He loved us so much that he sent his son down to rescue us. First coming, he came to redeem us and to redeem our lives and to put us in these communities of people called churches, local church families, and to begin to live for him and then to exhibit what a healed life looks like under the kingship and rulership of Jesus. So how we interact with each other, how we love one another, how we do parenting, how we do marriage, how we do work, all that we do, we're to do that as an exhibit of what lives look like that are being healed so that, in other words, what I put down on my notes, the church is to give the world a foretaste of heaven so that they will have a taste for heaven and have an appetite for the one that will make heaven heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question is, are, do you see that? Do you see that vision? So we're living between redemption and restoration. We're waiting for a second coming when he'll come back and set up his kingdom on this planet earth. But in the meantime, we're to be little smaller kingdoms and invite people into this, this acceptance and this, uh, this belonging. And this. I love what uh, Ryan said last week, not, don't drop the ball that you guys came up with. But uh, you, you, ball is spelt with another L, okay? It's like B-A-L-L. I added another L anyway, okay? Is that okay? Here's, here's my last, here's the, and I loved it. I think it's great. We don't want to drop the ball. We want to be a community where people belong, are accepted, loved, and led. Led to Jesus. And led. People need, need to be led. I think that's a whole lot better. Okay. Enough of that. But do you get the point? The brilliance of the gospel is to be revealed to the church. So let me ask you, is the brilliance of the gospel being demonstrated in your life and in your home and the way that you interact with the people in this church? Oh, by the way, I said it a couple weeks ago, 81% of the people think that they can, they can do that and not be a part of the church. You can't do that. The Apostle Paul doesn't even know what you're talking about. When people think, I can be a good Christian and not belong to a local church family, Paul said, What? That has nothing, that's, has nothing to do with what you believe has nothing to do with what God is all about and where God is. I want to be in the vortex of what God is all about, the very center of what God is doing. This is what God is all about. It's local church families. This is where he changed people's lives. This is where we put on the dis- display the brilliance of the gospel. So let's talk about, therefore, do not lose heart. So let's talk about this last part. So... That's that section, uh, God is great, God is good. We're living in the middle of the, the reality of all that God has provided for us through the gospel. Therefore, do not lose heart. Three statements about suffering. I got just a couple minutes, we'll knock this out. We're going to bring the band up, we're going to sing a song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's called Ruin Me. It's one of my favorite songs because it talks about, man, once you see his, once you see his glory, you're ruined. Game over. I mean, and, and so whatever you go through, you're wanting to put on display his glory. And that's a little bit of this. But let me, let me talk about this. Um, real quick, it's not, and I, and I talk to a lot of people, and I have to look at my own life. It's not the events of our life that make us who we are. Okay? What happened to me, and a lot of times people, we blame our chromosomes, our circumstances, and our conditioning. This is the way I was raised. If you would have known the kind of father or mother I had or blah, blah, blah. You know, people say those kind of things. It's not the events of life that determine how you think, feel, and behave in response. 
It's your evaluation of the events of life that determine how you think, feel, and respond. Did you know that? That's why you can have two people going through identical circumstances with totally opposite responses. I've, I've ministered to people that have, I've ministered to, to people both losing their job or both losing their home and one's freaking out and the other one's saying, hey, you know what? My life is in God's hands. Glory to God. Yeah, this hurts. Yes, I'm grieving this. Yet God's bigger than all of this. And God is meeting them in the midst of that while uh, someone else is maybe freaking out. Or maybe another response would be they just totally deny it and further medicate and look, look for anesthetics to numb the pain. But it's not what happens to us. It's our evaluation of what happens to us. In other words, we have to have a biblical worldview. We have to understand these next few points. And if you really understand the gospel, this is how you'll begin to see suffering. Suffering has a purpose. It's your next fill in the blank. Did you notice that Paul introduces himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus? He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. Why would he say that? Why would he make that distinction? Isn't that amazing? Because he knows that ultimately it's in God's hands. Every hair on my head is numbered. Every day in my life is is set forth. It's numbered. God knows. God is in control. And, And I would not be in prison right now if it wasn't for God. So this is part of his plan for my life. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of God. And he means that in all the positive ways that you can think of. He's saying this has purpose for my life. This is part of God's plan. So don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. God calls the shots in my life. I trust him. And I gave you some verses that kind of help you to understand what suffering does in our lives. Romans 5, 3 through 5, it develops character. Um, Psalm 119, 67 and 71, it redirects our lives. I'm kind of curious here, but just by show of hands, how many... Let me read these verses, then I'll do a quick survey. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. How many would say that that's true about you? That you, God wasn't even on the radar until you had some pain or suffering in your life? Put your hands up. Look how many people. Yeah, there was pain. There was pain that brought you to Jesus. And I'll tell you what. I'll bet you look at that pain, and that pain was well worth every bit of it. You might not wish it on your worst enemy, but you wouldn't, you're, you're glad that God brought it into your life because now you know him unlike ever before because he is better by far than any pain or any problem that you face. And really, that's what Paul's saying ultimately. Hey, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Suffering has purpose. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And by the way, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. There's probably millions, and much of that will not be revealed to you until you're face-to-face with your Savior. Here's the next point. Suffering cannot rob a Christian of his greatest treasure. What's our greatest treasure? Jesus. It's God. It's his presence. It's knowing him. Verse 12, once again, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Amazing. Amazing. Suffering can't rob you of joy, but idolatry can. It's interesting, Corey Tinboon, when she was asked what allowed her to endure the concentration camp, she responded, not what, but who. 
Job, when you read through the book of Job, when you begin to realize he struggles, most of the book is him asking, why and how? Why is this happening? I mean, how am I going to get through this? He spends most of the book doing that. And finally, when he comes to the end of the story, Job 42, 5, he has this encounter with the glory of God. And this is what he says. I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. And this is what he realized. I don't need to know the why or the how when I know the who. I know the who. And the more you get to know the who, that's the, that's the greatest treasure that we have. And then suffering is opportunity to display God's glory. Our greatest treasure, to put that on display. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here's the thing. Jesus' suffering on the cross gives us access to the throne room of God. He took away the only suffering that can ultimately destroy you, and that is to be alienated from God. You guys are familiar with this. If you've, if you've studied much, you know that a lump of coal under pressure becomes what? A diamond. So the world's greatest jeweler is working on your life through suffering to turn you from a lump of coal into a diamond on display for his glory. Listen to what St. Augustine said. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. Jesus Christ suffered not so that we would never suffer, but that when we suffer, we would be like him. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It comforts, it corrects, it convicts, but it changes our lives to become more like you. Lord, thank you for being here this morning to meet with us. Lord, help us to realize that indeed life is hard. May we not go the way of the uh, this stoicism or epicureanism where we swing to one extreme or the other. We, we deny our feelings or let our feelings rule our life. But may, may you meet us now, right now, right where we are in our feelings. And may we discover, God, that you are great. You are good. You love us with an everlasting love. And therefore, may we not lose heart. May we live our lives in such a way to put on display your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I needed that Bible study this morning. Did you need it? Praise God for his goodness. So, so may we, may you and I live in the deep, durable delight in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. God bless you.